Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello. How you doing? Hello. 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 Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. Conversations with storytellers. Wisdom. Folk and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. This is part two of a two-part interview with the amazing Elizabeth Ellis. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest going back and listening to that before you start here. If you have stumbled upon this, quite by chance, Conversations with Storytellers is exactly that. In my mind, Elizabeth Ellis is the godmother of storytelling. She is a powerhouse and a huge supporter of other storytellers. So now I'm going to ask you to sit down, relax, as we conclude part two of my interview with the wonderful Elizabeth Ellis. I know from a, a personal level, changing track just a little bit. Sure. Um, there, there are storytellers that influence me. Like when I was working in youth hostels, I got to see Eric Madden, uh, who's he's an Australian by birth, but I think he's British slash Welsh by heart and by longevity in the country. Um, and I saw him telling stories as a you know, in my twenties and was just like blown away by what he did, which is what got me hooked on telling stories. And then after him there was uh Odds Bodkin and, and Jim Weiss. Um, were there any storytellers that that influenced you or really popped for you? Or was the movement too small at that time? No, they're, they're, I mean I think I've been influenced by nearly every teller I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, certainly been influenced by people like Catherine Wyndham. Mm-hmm. What was the most important thing you learned from her, do you think? If there was one... Permission to be yourself. Permission to be who you really are in your heart and permission to draw on uh, to draw on your culture and tell in the way that people of your culture tell um, and know that that's enough that you don't have to imitate anybody else you don't have to be uh, able to juggle or play the guitar or do puppets or, you know, that there doesn't have to be, that a story plainly told in a conversational style, if it's told well and it's a strong story, that's enough. Yeah. That you really don't have to have a lot of fuss and feathers. Yeah. Uh, That Mountain storytellers rarely make a gesture. Mostly they tell seated mm-hmm. and they make eye contact with people and they use an expressive voice, but there's no big theatrics. Yeah. You know, I always figure I've done a really good job if somebody says, I didn't know when the story started. When you stop talking, and started telling. Yeah. I, I didn't know when that moment happened. I always figure I've been true to my people. Yeah. I have represented my culture yeah. in an authentic way and my voice has been true to who I am. Yeah. Yeah. I may have lived in Dallas for more than 40 years, mm-hmm. but Dallas is not my home. My right. home is Appalachia. My people are Appalachian and that's where my roots are. And I bring all the experience of all those traditional stories to bear on the crafting and the telling of personal tale. Right. And if anybody asks me what they can do the first about becoming a stronger teller of personal story, the very first thing I tell them is, you want to become a good teller of traditional story. 
because in the traditional story we see all of the template for what works when one person stands up without PowerPoint and props to share a tale. We can see all those basics. You know, people can keep three things straight in their head, but once you introduce the fourth one, you're on shaky ground. And by the time you get to five or six, they're utterly lost. You know, it's those kinds of things. How do we use the voice? Mm -hmm. How do we... How much description is too much description? What really works in a story? The prototype for all of that is in the folktale. Both the folktales from Appalachia and from Great Britain and from places all over the from places all over the world, Africa, South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, different cultures have different styles for sharing stories with people, but there's usually a wide variety of tellers' styles within any given culture. You know, if you think think about the African-American storytellers that are well-known in our community. No one would ever think of Bobby Norfolk as being like Brother Blue. Yes, that's true. Well, I don't think anybody would compare anybody to being being Brother Blue. Blue, Well, I'm so old, I remember when his stories had plot lines. (laughs) He certainly was. He yeah. certainly was. So I, I, I love traditional stories, and I love telling traditional stories. I, I know you do. Um, and you're good at it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you want me to speak directly into the tape recorder? No, that's fine. <laughs> I can make that louder when I get to it. Um, I, I, I sometimes inject uh, a personal story into like a segue to a, a folk story sure. when I'm working with an adult audience. Very, very rarely with a, uh, a younger audience, I just tell them the, the stories that they want to hear. Um, what, when you first started telling your personal stories, let me, let me backpedal a little bit. So with, with some personal stories, I feel that um, there are some amazing tales to be told personal narratives to be told Um, because there's depth to them, there's meaning to them, there's there's a way that these stories can create empathy with fellow human beings. Um, There's there's stories that make you feel that you're not alone and, and, and that you don't have to suffer alone and that you've got other people who have the same issues that you do or similar issues and that gives you hope to overcome them. And then there, there are other personal stories that I feel best left for a therapist's office. Um, and it was the same with the, the big poetry slam scene. I mean, I was, I was very into that uh, in the 80s Were you? and 90s, yeah. Um, lo- wrote a lot of poetry. Um, went to poetry slams, very rarely did I participate in them and quite often would listen through a lot of trite before that, that gem, that pearl would appear. Would jump up. Yeah, right. And I feel I feel that that some people tend to tell these stories that are more for their personal gratification or for shock value rather than for um, any other qualification. When you first started telling your personal stories, um, I, I'm imagining and I don't know, so I am imagining uh, that there were probably very, very few people at the time that were telling personal stories. There were not as many as there are now. Right. Yeah. So you. Not, not as many. I'm not sure if I, I, I can use the word pioneer or. But definitely one of the. Uh, I don't know that I'd use the word pioneer. I mean, so, so when you started telling your personal stories, do, how did you make decisions? Of what what stories were good for sharing and what what are best left at home. 
what made you decide on the stories that were the good ones? I think the the way to choose the good ones or to see which ones the lister can see their faces in. A good story, traditional or personal, a good story is always like a mirror. If the listener doesn't see their face in it, you might just as well stay at home and phone it in. Yeah. How, what does this have to do with my life? Right. What does this have to do with me? I can't say that I've never jumped across that line into therapy. I have. And where that line is is different for some people than for others. Uh, I mean, in the in the listening audience, right. some people only want to hear what's light and funny. The pioneer, I would say, for telling personal stories would be Donald Davis. Yeah, God, he's so good. All those stories about his happy childhood in North Carolina. But not all of us had happy childhoods. And does that mean I don't tell about my childhood, or does that mean that I try to learn to tell about my childhood in a way that other people... I pick and choose what pieces I tell. And if it's going to get difficult, how do I make my listener feel safe And how do I bring them home safely? I think that most people will go pretty much with you wherever you want to go in a story, even if it's very deeply personal. If they feel that you are taking care of them, and if they feel like they're going to come home safe. I can't promise to bring people home unchanged. Right, yeah. Because when any of us go on a journey, we never really come back the same people that left. But I want to make sure that my listeners come home safely. And that's, to me, one of the great differences between the theater and storytelling. In the theater, people sit in the dark and they experience what's put toward them individually in the dark without recognition from the artists that they are even there because of the fourth wall. And no thought is given to their emotional safety what is presented is presented and whatever, however they have to manage to deal with it, that's just the way it is. That's theater, baby. That's theater. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the storyteller, if they are good at their craft, mm-hmm. is always concerned about caretaking their listeners. The lights are left on so that The listeners can see one another and they don't feel isolated. The storyteller looks directly at them and delivers the story particularly to them and often the story is fluid enough so that it changes depending upon the relationship of the teller and the listener. In theater, you know that if you were not there, nothing would be different. Right. And in a story, as a listener, you should know if you were not there, everything would be different. Right. And, and all it takes is like one person, and the difference is like huge. Exactly. I mean, Kevin exactly. was working on his story last night, and then he ran through it with me. And um, I obviously didn't see it when he was doing it on his own, but when I saw him perform it later in front of the audience, it was different again. Right. So, storytelling is a very personal art form. And 
because people are making are are participating in the creation of the story. You talking about the audience? Yeah, yeah. the listeners. Right. They're very they're more vulnerable because they've invest they've vested more of themselves in the experience. So the storyteller has some responsibility to take care of them, to make sure that they're going to be all right and not to take them out into some incredibly dark and snaky place emotionally and then abandon them. Okay, you guys been for yourselves. Which is what happens if the storyteller loses control of the story. The storyteller always needs to be thinking, who's running the story? Who's running the show? Am I in control of the story or is the story in control of me? And I'm not saying that it's not a I'm not saying that it's not okay to show any emotion. But there's a line that you try really hard not to cross. Yeah. You you can show some emotion, but you have to maintain control because the moment at which you lose control and say begin to weep or whatever, the listeners stop listening and become caregivers. Their whole role has been, they've been thrown on their heads. Mm -hmm. Uh, From their role as listeners, all of a sudden they've become caregivers. And instead of focusing on the story, their whole focus is, is the teller going to be all right? Right. And so when we were watching uh, uh, Sally, Sally, was it? No, it wasn't Sally. Who was it? Jessica Carton. Yeah, Jessica Carton. Yeah. And she was telling the story about her grandfather. Right. And she appeared to be weeping, but then she she stopped and she she was yeah. that was she part performance. Right. And went, she went right up to the edge, and it was did. hard to s- decide how much of that was for effect and how much of that was real. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was, there, uh, yeah. I felt that she was kind of like leaning over the edge and that, that right. edge was very blurry. Yeah, it was quite, um, yeah, it was quite blurry. Um, right. But as, as she got close to the end of the story, I realized that there was a line there and that she was in control. But it, 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 it made me feel very vulnerable. But an occasional break in the storyteller's voice. Yeah. Maybe tearing up even, right. but not Losing control. Not losing control, not breaking down. I had a stroke back in August of nineteen four of of twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. So two it's been almost two years. And after I had the stroke I had a horribly difficult time controlling my emotions. And Everything that they gave me in the paperwork to take home told me this. But it's a whole different thing for me than it is for the average person. I found it hard to control my anger and my frustration. When I started to laugh, I would just lose it and it would go on for days and be absolutely out of proportion to the situation so that people are turning to look at you and wonder what the heck is going on over there and the people you're having dinner with are going, I never saw her before in my life. I thought she was your cousin, you know. But especially the tears. All the first telling I did for adults after the stroke, probably for four, maybe five months, I would begin it with, I had a stroke a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and I find it difficult not to weep. At this point, if a commercial comes on for dog food, I'm sitting in my chair weeping. I have to have a Kleenex and blow my nose. God forbid a Hallmark commercial could come on. I would be devastated. And so I'm getting ready to tell you a story. And I may weep while I'm telling it. And if that disturbs you, 
I hope that you'll be able to stay in the story and understand that it's caused by the stroke. If that disturbs you, then with great respect, I say, bite me. And everybody would laugh. And if I had difficulty controlling my emotion, people were pretty forgiving because I hadn't because I didn't try to hide it from them. I set it up so that they knew it might happen. Right. You know, and if it didn't, people would come up and congratulate me because they re- they they really realized that it was an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. You're doing really great. You're doing good. You didn't you didn't cry or anything. That was really good. You know, uh, and I would do. I would say thank you and go home and just lose it, go home and just sob. Yeah, the story would be in my head and I'd just be weeping and weeping and weeping over a story I'd told for 20 years, you know, like it, like I just now discovered it. Yeah. And like my dog had just been run over by a car. I mean, I was just, you know, a wreck, just an absolute wreck. But as the time has gone by and I have worked to regain those skills, I've come to a place where I feel safer and safer, not having to. Yeah, worry about. I'm going to tell in Jonesboro as a featured teller in October. I probably will. At least at the beginning of the weekend, say, with great respect, bite me. <laughs> you know, we'll, yeah. we'll see what happens. We'll see it, what is that because it's um, because it's such a big event, Jonesboro? Yeah, when you're under a lot of stress, you know, you know, and if you're telling new material, you sometimes think it's just harder to ride herd on all of that, you know. In the morning, I'm going to do, uh, I usually get two solo times, usually ask for two. In the morning, I'm going to tell a set of person, funny personal stories not all fun. A set of personal stories about aging okay. called Waterfront Property on the River Sticks. I like that title. I do too. That's I was it. pleased when I thought that up. Um, originally it was Waterfront Property on the River Jordan and I decided that wasn't metaphorical enough. There were people who were likely to interpret it as being geographical rather than metaphorical. So I changed it to the River Sticks because as a child, the tradition was the Jordan River is the, metaphorically, is the separation between the living and the dead, you know. But I decided the River Sticks was was a better choice because more people could, it it didn't have any religious connotation to it, although I'm, I mean, there was a time when people believed Right, Many people right. believed it was the dividing line between them. And then uh, I'm going to tell the story of David from the Bible. I want to tell it like old story, the way we hear the fall of Troy or Gilgamesh, or just for the, sh- the power of that story because there's so much in it that's really... It's a remarkable story. It is, yeah. People know David and Goliath, and that often that's about all they know. There's a lot so, of that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And David's story is, is it's an interesting one. So if this is kind of a crazy question. If you had to abandon, if somebody said you have to get rid of one of your stories and never tell it ever again, what story would that I've had that experience. Okay. What's, what story is that? What's that? I, I don't want to... Uh, I've had the experience of someone I was once close to saying, I want you... I demand that you stop telling stories that have me in them. Oh, okay. And since they were there when the stories occurred, that means you can't tell the story at all because there's no way to alter it. Right. And that was really, really painful. I, I, I felt betrayed. Uh, it was really hard. But the question was, if I had, a, if, you, if, if you the, had to choose a story that you had 
it's a stop sign. Just give up a yeah. stop sign. I'm sort of on the other end of that right now in my life, but if I had to stop telling the story, I'd probably choose one of my personal experience stories, maybe one that I think isn't as well-crafted as I know how to... I, I believe I have grown as a teller and a crafter of stories, and so it would be easier to give up some of my early stories that I don't feel are quite as well-formed or as well developed um, I'd probably choose although the other pe there are other people who like the story very much I'd probably choose Flowers and Freckle Cream as the one I would abandon okay. I rarely ever tell it even now If you could only tell one story for the rest of your life what would that story be? Like Meat Loves Salt okay. Do you want to tell me that story? Sure you already know it. There was once an old king and he had three daughters. One time, one by one, he called the girls to him and he said, well, now what would you have me get for you when I go to town? The oldest girl, she said, bring me a bright flashing red dress. And the middle girl said, bring me a dark flashing green dress. And the youngest, she said, bring me a dress of solid white, please, Daddy. Well, the old king went to town and he did up all his business. When he finished, he bought the three dresses for his daughters and he folded them carefully and put them in his saddlebags, rode home. As he's riding down one of those mountain trails, a branch came down low off a maple tree. He was a proud man. He is way too stubborn to bend his head. So he reached up with his hand and he broke off that maple limb. And when it was broken, it was covered all over in beautiful white roses. Well, that was a great wonder. So the king put it before him on his saddle horn and he rode home. And when he got there, once again he called his daughters to him and he said, how much do you love me? Well, the oldest girl said, I love you more than all the golden jewels in the whole world, because that was what she had on her mind. But the old king liked her answer, so he broke off one of those white roses and he laid it on that bright flashing red dress and handed it to the girl and she went to make herself ready to go to a dance. And then the middle girl came in. He said, how much do you love me? She said, I love you more than all the husbands and lovers I could ever have. The old king liked that answer too. He broke off one of those white roses and he laid it on that dark flashing green dress and handed it to the girl and she went to make herself ready to go to the dance. And then the youngest came in. She had always been the one that he had loved the best of all, so he was eager to hear her answer. How much do you love me? She said, I don't have an answer for a question like that. No, he said, I want to know. Tell me how much you love me. She said, well, I just love you, that's all. I don't know how to tell you how much. Why, I love you like meat loves salt. What, said the old king. I just love you, said the girl, that's all. I love you like meat loves salt. But the old king flew into an awful rage, and he grabbed the white dress and threw it on the ground. He grabbed the girl and dragged her out and locked her up in a high tower where she saw no one except one old woman who cooked for her and brought her water. There she stayed for a long time. One day, she was sitting in the tower window. She was combing out her long hair, letting her tears roll down her face. And the Duke of England came riding across that land and he looked up and saw her in the tower. I guess there must have been a grapevine growing up the side of that tower. As the Duke took hand of that vine and climbed up to her window, and he brought her out and he put her before him on his horse and rode away with her, took ship to England, and when he reached his own country, he married her, and the two of them, they lived happy together. Now as time went on, the other two girls got married as well, and they went to live with their own husbands. 
When the old king grew older and older, when he could no longer care for himself, someone else took the throne and he was sent to live with the oldest girl. All the beautiful things he brought from his old home, she sold for her pleasure. So he knew that she didn't really love him. And he went to live with the middle girl. But her husband didn't like the old king. And so the daughter made him eat in the kitchen and sleep among the servants. And in his anger and his pride, he wandered away and nobody cared enough about him to see where he had gone. As time went by, those other two girls' husbands started making a war against the Duke of England. And the Duke brought his troops and his ships and his wife. He came to fight in the war. When his wife had reached her own country again, she turned to him and she said, I've lived with you a long time. We've always been happy together. But I'm pining for the place I used to live when I was a little girl, and I want to go and see it again. And after I've seen it, I'll come back to you. When she came to the place where her old home had stood, there was nothing left but a burned and charred out ruin of a building. And there was her father, wandering through the ruins, cloudy-headed in his mind. He had made himself a crown out of blackberry briars that he wrapped around his head. And as he walked along, he kept muttering to himself. But when the girl saw him there, all the time she'd spent in the tower dropped away from her. What she saw was her old daddy who needed her. So she went to him, and although he didn't recognize her, he let her lead him away. She brought him back to her husband, the Duke. Where the war was won, they took ship, and they sailed once again to England. And there, in her new home, the girl made a beautiful apartment of rooms for her father. She saw that he was never going to want for any kind of good thing. And one night she went to the kitchen, and she said to the cook, Tonight, when you fix the meal, I want you to fix the meat without a single speck of salt. And the cook said, I don't want to do that. That's not going to taste right. You do as you were bidden, said the girl. And so that night, when the meat was put on the table and everybody assembled for the meal, the old king came to the table and once he had tasted his food, he dropped his face in his hands and he began to weep bitterly. He said, I had a daughter and I asked her how much she loved me. She said she loved me like meat loves salt. I was cruel to her. I didn't even try to understand what the child was telling me. I don't even know what's become of the girl by now. Father, said the girl. When the old king raised his face up out of his hands, standing there in front of him, holding the salt cellar, there was his youngest girl. And when he saw her, his mind came back to him. And he called a servant to him, and he sent the servant across the ocean water to bring the white dress that he had promised her. And when it was brought, on it there was a spray of beautiful white roses, and they were as fresh and as fragrant as the day that they'd been picked. Excellent. You're pretty I, good yourself, you know. <laughs> I had a little moment there. Our home place has burned to the ground, oh. and I went to see it. I guess I wish I hadn't done that now. Well, no, it was something I needed to do, but I haven't told that story much lately because every time I start to tell it, when I get to the place where she gets to where her old home had stood, there's a chimney and a pair of porch steps, and that's all that's left is the chimney and the porch steps. It's just, it isn't even what people would call a shell of a house. It's literally all, all gone. So uh, that's the picture I have in my mind when I get to that part of the story. But I want to try really hard to bring it to the place where I can tell it again without getting hung up in that part of the tale. 
It's a great story. Well, Shakespeare liked it a lot. He yeah. wrote King Lear from it. Yeah, you know. right. I think people forget that the people who went to see Shakespeare's plays already knew the stories. Yeah. They could have a great time with all the theatrics because they knew what was going to happen next, right. and who the characters were and all of that. You know? I think there was um, some sort of participation as well. Yeah. yeah. Or at least calling out. Right. And many of the stories that are his comedies were Italian stories that people knew because it wasn't unusual for an Italian storyteller to come to England because they were pretty exotic and they could make pretty good money in the markets and right. in bit, the halls. And, yeah, a little bit like me coming over here and telling folk stories. Exactly. <laughs> Any of us going someplace where we're considered a, a, a new commodity. Yeah, right. People in New Zealand thought I was exotic. How did you how did you like that? How did I what? Like being. Considered I, oh, I thought it. I thought it was. I enjoyed those people so much. It was really lovely. So I, a lot of my folk expressions, they didn't understand what they meant. So I had to try to kind of pick and choose, not different stories, but how I was going to express the story because folk speech is so much of what I do. You know, I had to really, I would think each story through, no, instead of that I'll say it this way to help them understand. They just, you know, if a story is an Appalachian tale, there's no such thing as one noun. You know it's Appalachian because all nouns are double nouns. You know, it's sweet milk, light bread, church house, yeah, it's right, right. <laughs> it's just a, it's a part of the vernacular, you know, and a, a lot of those expressions, they, yeah, they're just second nature to me because I grew up with them. But people from other cultures, okay, a perfect example. There is a book in Canada from Canada that has one of my stories in it, and it's for high school students for their literature class. And my story is in the section on cultural diversity, which just makes me fall over laughing. But in the textbook, mm -hmm. there are footnotes. That's cool. <laughs> because there were expressions in it that they figured the kids wouldn't know at all. Right. You know, Southern American expressions, mountain expressions. The Canadian kids have never heard those at all. And so literally, there are footnotes. I cannot tell you how hard my children laughed over that. They thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever seen in their right. entire life. Mom, you got a footnote. You got a footnote. <laughs> it's like just the tiny little tip of that film about Ray Hicks telling stories that has subtitles. Have you ever seen that? No. Oh, there's a great film of Ray telling a Jack tale, and it, they decided he, they needed footnotes so people would be able to understand what he is saying. So it's great. It's great. Uh, That's like Harry Potter when Harry Potter came over here. They, they, at first, when they first brought them over, you know, telephone boxes were immediately changed to phone booths. Right. And letter boxes were mailboxes. And a letter box isn't a letter box, it's a slit in the door. So it didn't, you know. It didn't quite, not everything really yeah. translates. Right. Yeah, right. Culture is very, in language and culture. Language. Very, yeah. And how much language influences culture yeah. and how much culture influences language. Boy, there's a circle that goes on forever. Yes, you know, yeah. Forever and forever. That's true. So if, what's your favorite breakfast? My favorite breakfast. Yes. What's your favorite breakfast? Mm, I'm pretty. If I could have anything I want. Yeah, anything you want. Poor doing red eye gravy. Okay. And where would your favorite place be to eat that? In the kitchen of that house that burned to the ground. Oh, that's In a way, that's home. In a way that the Tennessee house is house. 
I don't know, just I think because my grandparents were there. Uh, to me, uh, you know, on a lot of levels, that was home. Uh, grilled cheese sandwich with government commodity cheese. Is that like Velveeta? Government commodity cheese is the best cheese in the world for making grilled cheese sandwiches because it's so greasy. Okay, so it is like Velveeta. Well, not quite. It's America. It's like American processed cheese. Okay. I guess. It doesn't quite taste like Velveeta. But when I was a kid, if you were really poor, the government would give these five-pound blocks of cheese uh -huh. and uh, big. I guess that, is that a number three tin can? That's oh, a, yes. Of peanut butter. Those kinds of things were government commodities. You know, you went down and stood in line and waited for your commodities. Huh. That peanut butter makes the best peanut butter cookies in the world. I know you don't believe me, but it's true. Yeah, I don't like peanut butter cookies. Oh, too bad. Too no, bad. not for me. <laughs> I think that they're pretty close to being sacred. Really? Well, on the top of them, when you make peanut butter cookies, mm -hmm. if you do it right, you're supposed to, there's this little ball there, you take the fork and you mash it down and across. Right. And that Cross makes a basic mandala. If you look oh. at it, there's the round cookie with yeah. the cross in it. So I have come to think of it as sort of mother kind of holiness. My mother made so many, my mother was the school the cook in the school cafeteria and she might make 400 cookies in a day wow. 500 cookies in a day and every one of them had that cross in it and so over the years I have come to think of the perfect peanut butter cookie as being a, a sort of expression if God has a female face then God makes peanut butter cookies my theology and I'm sticking to it. You should, you should. I like that. I like that. My theology and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> she, you know, back in the in the day, they didn't pre-process food and bring it to the school. The people who worked in the school cafeteria, right. those women made everything from scratch. So, right. Yeah. There's a few schools in New Hampshire that still still do that. Do that. Yeah. 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 Mom, I got to see one of my cousins I hadn't seen in a long time from my father's side of the family. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen him in year, maybe 25 years. His family was really poor. He said, you know what I remember of your mother? And I was prepared for anything. I had no <laughs> earthly idea. He said, I remember your mother in the cafeteria. She always had on her white uniform like all the other women. All the other women were just there in their white uniforms. And your mother always had a beautifully colored handkerchief in her pocket and a brooch to hold it in place. And your mom knew, and this is brand new news to me, your mom knew every kid in the school who was really poor. And when we came along, pushing our cafeteria trays and she was serving food we always got twice as much food as anybody else got because your mom knew that might be the only meal we'd see that day mm. yeah I as a child didn't see that at all you know? right. but it was so interesting to hear him talk about my mother and his remembrances of her yeah she always gave the poor kids twice as much food I think there are a great many people in America who have no earthly idea how poor people live. Right, I think you're right. If they've never been poor or known anyone who was poor, right. then they don't really, you know. It's not in their radar. I remember the times of my life when I knew exactly how many days after it was due they would actually turn off the water or the electricity. I'm grateful that I don't have to live like that now, but I do know there are a lot of people who could tell you exactly almost to the hour when they're going to turn your power off if you haven't paid the bill, you know. Uh, people who are perpetually living from paycheck to paycheck. And mm -hmm. if any one thing goes wrong, the car has to be repaired, a kid gets strep right. throat, that's all it takes to ditch them 
you know, put them in a hole, a ditch that takes them maybe several weeks to climb back up out of. Yeah, if it's dentist, it'll be months, right? Yeah, right. Jeez, right. Oh, so sad. Really grateful that I don't have to live that way anymore. Right. Yeah. How long were you living like that for? Well, uh... If you don't mind me asking. I would say in the, in the old day, we were really poor when I was a kid, but my mother was a really good manager. I don't have those kinds of memories from my childhood. Mm-hmm. But when I became a storyteller, I'd say there was about six or seven months when things were really, really hard. And there have been times throughout the years when just because of the nature of the way you get paid, mm-hmm. uh, feast and famine, yeah, and, you know, when it would be more of a cash flow issue than a poverty issue. But there were yeah, six or seven months when it was definitely a poverty issue there for a while. Uh, my kids are grown now, you know. Even my grandson, I raised as a grown man. <laughs> so. What are they doing? Um, my son works for a sign company. They're specialty. It's a mom and pop place. Their specialty is all the signs that you would use in a convenience store or a gas station, which is, when you stop and think of it, an enormous number of different kinds of signs. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, My daughter drives cars for a living. NASCAR? She's a big NASCAR fan. She would if she had the chance. Uh, she's the person who picks... When you tear your car into the dealership to trade it in, mm-hmm. because you're buying a new car, and the dealer feels they have to take it because you bought it there, but they don't really want it. She's the person who's going to come and get it and drive it to the auto auction so it can get sold. So she spends most of her days in the Dallas traffic, zipping back and forth between the other cars, taking cars to the auto auction. Yeah. Um, she likes driving. My, yes. My grandson I raised stayed in school and got degrees and he's on the staff at Rice University. Nice. He's the head of their intramurals program at Rice. Just a little bit proud of him. I am and very pleased for him. One of the better days of my recent life have been when we went out to dinner together one night and he reached for the check and he said, I'm getting this, I make more money than you do. Isn't that what we would want for all our kids? Yeah, is that they have good, steady jobs yeah, and reach right. for the paycheck. Yeah, I mean, reach for the restaurant check. Yeah, I make more money than you do. Okay, that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah if people knew how many economic risks we take as a group of people, mm-hmm. they would be shocked. You know? Right. Shocked. Some of us are lucky because we have spouses and partners yeah, that. Are. Right. That woman who said today that she left a tenured college position to yeah, become a right. storyteller. I could feel the ripples going across yeah, the floor right. under people's feet. Yeah. Okay. Somebody very young and risky. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Willing to take a big risk. If I have any resentment toward any storyteller, and I try not to have much of those at all. It's people who weren't willing to take the risks and still want to reap the benefits of being a tell, being a professional teller. Right. Yeah. Make a commitment. You know, right. Make a commitment. Yeah. It's a hard choice to make, though. Well, I know that it, it's it's not a life for everybody. Mm-hmm. I understand that. I have a dear friend who's a great storyteller, and I had hoped that perhaps he would choose that we would be partners and tell to, I love to work with other people I like to collaborate with people we choose to tell together as partners and he's not suited for this life his need for security is so big that this would be pain making a life the way we make a life mm-hmm. would be painful for him just plain painful for him he made the right choice to decide to stick with working for the state government. Right. 
I talk to him at the end of the day sometimes, and I say, what did you do today? And he says, I made the world safe for bureaucracy. <laughs> so talking of young tellers. Yeah, buddy. So you, you, I know that you're a big uh, fan of young tellers and supporting them. Try to. Try to yeah. do whatever I can to support them right. and to help them. Right. Sometimes <clears throat> it's hard to know what they need. You wish they would ask. Do, do you think that they don't know themselves what they need? It's possible. It's possible. Know, yeah. But sometimes even if they know they're shy about asking right. and they don't realize that most people would just be tickled to death to help them. Right. You know, they're we're over here wishing we were being asked and they're over there wishing that they had the nerve to ask. And that right. sort of seems silly in the extreme. I wish there was more that could be done about that. Right. So if we hang out with them, then maybe we seem more approachable to them. Right. I spent a couple of hours last night with somebody who's been invited to be an exchange place teller for the first time. So nice. I could make it a little easier, you know, explain to her how it's going to work. We sat down at the computer, went over the website, and I talked to her about the people who were going to be there and what I knew about each of the other exchange places. One of the things she was trying to decide was what to tell. I'm going to get to tell one story. Right. That's so hard, yeah, you know. And she had a real quandary about whether or not she should tell a story that dealt with social justice issues or whether or not she should tell a story that would showcase all of her multitude of skills with voices and all of that, you know. And so we're looking at the list of tellers for Exchange Place and I was telling her what I knew about their work so that she might have a good idea of thinking about how she could set herself up to be different from, you know, what, would she, what could she tell that would help her be seen as unique. What I'm trying to say, huh, you, know, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So, but if she hadn't come up to me and asked me, I wouldn't have had any earthly idea that I knew anything that would be of use. Right. What another teller said, "Why don't you go and speak to Elizabeth and see if she has any advice about being an exchange place teller?" So she came up and addressed. You know, I did. I never met her before. Right. Uh, and wouldn't have known to seek her out. Right. So if they get brave enough to ask a question, we can be all kinds of help. But right. they have and I've, to. I've talked to all of the people that have blue tags. I've talked to them and tried yeah. to get an, an idea of right. like who and what they are. Absolutely. And what they do, and it's right. like, oh, you should talk to yeah. Elizabeth. You should talk to Laura Susan O'Halloran, or you yeah, should right, right. go talk to Laura Nemi about that. Yes. You know, et yeah, cetera. Yeah. Uh, Dale Siemens or whoever. I mean, there's such a wide variety of people here. You know. Trying to think if there's something else I can ask you. Is there anything you'd like to share with with me about storytelling? Hmm. Let's see. I wish we worked harder at our craft as a community. I know that's not a popular thing to say, but when I look at people in other art forms and how much time they put into the preparation of their art. Sometimes I think we ought to work a little harder. Think about how many hours a dancer rehearses every day, yeah. how many hours a musician rehearses every day, you know, they say 10,000 hours for mastery in order to have mastery yeah. over an art form or, yeah. Uh, I wish we worked harder. We wish we put our 10,000 in. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. I am always eager for people to come and hear storytelling. It's very hard to get adults to come to the first event, but if they come, they usually like what they hear and want to come back. Most people, but getting them that to come to that first event is like pulling a tooth. I think, um, I think a lot of adults tend to think of storytelling just for kids. Right, exactly. Um, Exactly. And we avoid what we don't know anything about. We avoid right. the unknown. Right. I don't know what this would be like, so I'm not going to go take a chance on right. that. I certainly am not going to spend money on something I know nothing about. Right. I was doing a gig a few years back. It was middle of summer, and it was a humid day, and it was raining. 
and um, I was outdoors at a library and I was mic'd up because it was it was kind of like an old home day so there was lots of events going on all through the town and they wanted as much stuff outside as possible so that people that come into the town can see what's going yeah. on and can uh-huh. visit and stuff and they had a tent for me which because I was mic'd up and it was raining I stayed underneath it but I was a, made myself as far back as possible so he get as many kids under kids it. Under the yeah. Um, but as I'm as I'm telling, there are people walking by, and they would stop in the rain, and listen to the story. And there was this there was this one guy. He was a biker, right? You know, he's got no crash helmet. He's you know, the the, t- the denim vest with the short sleeve t-shirt, tattoos, built like a brick shed, and he stopped as I'm telling these stories, and he caught the end of the story that I was telling. And he listened to a whole other story before moving on. And I was like, you know, stories are so powerful. People forget that that even this performance, which was essentially for kids, you know, I had this guy standing there for 10 minutes in the rain as I told this story. And it's just like, come in, listen. You know? Getting him under that tent's really hard. Yeah, yeah. right. Stand at the back. Right. Listen, but getting them to make the commitment to sit down in a chair is really hard. It is, it is. But when they do... Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that moment when they lean forward in their chairs. Yes. It doesn't get better than that. No, it yeah, doesn't. It doesn't get it doesn't. better than that. Really well, maybe eighth grade boys who come slouching in and throw themselves down in the chairs and glare at you and go and you know that what they're thinking is yeah go ahead lady entertain me yeah three little pigs isn't going to cut it (laughs) when you spin the ghost story and there is that moment where they literally all go up in the air at the same time and then back down that's it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, it's true. Because <laughs> when they come in, there's a piece of me that is mean-spirited and said, uh, my response when they come in with the, all that attitude is... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw that... Um, yeah, I love that. That, that. that jump was... It was Tony T- It was a three-apple storytelling festival, and we were in a church in Massachusetts, and it's predominantly adults, and a few, you know, a few families there. <laughs> and Tony is a master of the jump story. And I'm at the back of the back of the church, and he gets to this point of the story, and I jumped as well. But I swear, everyone lifted six inches off the seat and went down. And I just it, love that. Uh, yeah, and I went up to Tony afterwards. And I was like, Tony, how do you not crack up laughing <laughs> when you see everyone <laughs> jump up? Right. He was like, well, the first few times it was really, really hard. Um, and, you know, you still well, have those that. things where you have to laugh later. Yeah, right, right. right. Oh, but it is, it's such a fun experience. It is, it's just wonderful. Elizabeth, thank you so much indeed for your time. You were quite it, welcome. It's, were uh, quite it's welcome. been a pleasure spending this amount of time with it's you. It's been fun for me too. Many heartfelt thanks to Elizabeth for giving me so much of her time and for being the first to take the plunge. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thanks to Ben Schultz, who provided the music. Ben is a fine songwriter. Look up his work. Creating this podcast is very much a labour of love and takes a large amount of time and no small resource to make and host. To keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this either through my website, www.simonbrooksstoryteller.com or on my Patreon page, www dot patreon.com slash simon brooks a couple of dollars a month a single donation if you like a particular episode will all help get me more proficient pay for storing these podcasts for the future and allowing me to travel further afield to interview these incredible voices if you can leave a review wherever you found this episode it helps not just me but it helps others find this podcast and know what they're getting into Please jump on the interwebs and find out more about my guests and follow them, and me if you like. All the guests are amazing storytellers, which is why I interview them on this show. Again, thanks for listening and being there. I hope you join me for the next episode of Conversations with Storytellers, when the guest will be... Dun, dun, dun! 
You must know by now, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Until next time, be safe out there.